It's Tuesday, October 26th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Falling in line with what we heard from Pfizer's mRNA vaccine, Moderna has released interim data showing that their vaccine is also safe and produced the desired immune response in children ages 6 to 11. The dosage would be half of what it is for adults, but still comes in a two-shot protocol. Peter Loftus, pharmaceutical reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for what to expect as the vaccines get closer to being approved for children. Next, remember all those vaccine lotteries? It went something like this. Get your vaccine and you're automatically entered to win a million bucks. 19 states in total ran some type of lottery and spent at least $89 million. Unfortunately, they didn't work too well. Research says that the increases were very small in magnitude and statistically indistinguishable from zero. Aaron Shoemaker, science editor at Business Insider, joins us for more. Finally, for those that enjoy a good night out dancing with friends or having a drink, you may be asking when you can enjoy nightlife again. The pandemic changed a lot, but as things open up more, it's all about assessing your personal risk. Clubs and bars, after all, are perfect places to spread COVID with crowds of people and poor ventilation. Alex Abad Santos, senior correspondent at Fox, joins us for what to know. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The immune responses, the levels of antibodies that are produced against the coronavirus in this younger age group, kids 6 to 11, was roughly comparable to what was seen in young adults in a previous study. Joining us now is Peter Loftus, pharmaceutical reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Peter. My pleasure. So we have some more good news in line with what we heard from Pfizer. Moderna and their vaccine has been found to be generally safe and induced a desired immune response in children ages 6 to 11 in a clinical trial. There's been this push, obviously, to get the vaccines approved for younger children. That way we can vaccinate the maximum amount of Americans possible. So, Peter, what are we seeing in the Moderna data? Right. Well, the Moderna data are from a study that they started back in the spring, and they basically took children who were under the age of 12, in fact, all the way down to um, six months of age, and they gave them basically a half dose of their regular vaccine. And so on the same schedule, two doses, four weeks apart, but the difference from the vaccine that's approved from adults, approved for adults is that, that this one used in younger kids is a half dose. And so, and then they tracked how they did in terms of their immune responses. And they basically found that the immune responses, the levels of antibodies that are produced against the coronavirus in this younger age group, kids 6 to 11, was roughly comparable to what was seen in young adults in a previous study. And so they are taking that as a sign that this vaccine could be protective for younger kids as well. And the dosage is such an important thing, right? I mean, there's a lot of parents that are concerned, obviously, not wanting to uh, put something into their children or, or whatever. You know, they just want to be have them be protected. But that dosage was such an important thing and that they use that lesser dose should uh, reassure some of the parents, at least, that, you know, it's not the same thing as what you went through. It's, you know, they're younger, they uh, don't get affected by COVID the same way. So they use that lesser dose, but they still achieve those same levels of antibodies. Right. And this is also what was what has been seen with Pfizer's vaccine. They are using, I believe, a dose that's a, a third of the, the level of the adult vaccine in studies of younger kids. 
But in any case, it's important that there's this difference because kids are smaller. And it also may be important. I don't think we can say this for sure right now, but it might be important when it comes to side effects, because one of the things that we've seen with the vaccines and which I think many parents are concerned about is this risk of a rare heart inflammation condition that has been seen in some recipients of the of both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine. The risk seems most pronounced when you look at all the different age groups and, and gender groups, most pronounced in young men and adolescent males. And so that's been a concern. And so I think the going with a lower dose level in these vaccines as they're tested in children, it's possible, we don't know for sure, but it's possible that that could mitigate that risk of, the, of these heart inflammation conditions. Yeah, the most common side effects included the same as everybody else, right? Fatigue, headache, and fever. The majority of them were mild and mo- uh, mild to moderate, so not really bad. But Moderna didn't specifically say if there were any cases of myocarditis in the new study. And I believe with the Pfizer vaccine, I think they said that there were no cases that popped of it uh, popped up of it w- in this age range. True. Yes, that is correct. It's also important to keep in mind that the, that these studies were talking about a couple thousand kids, and it's been pointed out by the FDA that, uh, and then I think by the companies too, that that the a trial that size might not be big enough to detect a risk that is, you know, still relatively rare, like this risk of the the heart inflammation condition. And so I just would caution that people shouldn't extrapolate that just because it didn't happen in the clinical trial. I I don't want people to think that that therefore would not happen then in real world use if it goes into millions of people. What are we looking at when we talk about timing? Obviously, Pfizer is a lot further ahead. Um, You know, authorization for that could be uh, early in November, they say. Moderna, what are we looking at? Moderna is definitely behind and you know, I don't think there's a clear idea of when their vaccine could be approved. As far as I know, there hasn't been a, a meeting scheduled of this FDA vaccine advisory committee, which has been meeting to consider a lot of these different uses of the vaccines. And it's that committee that's meeting tomorrow to talk about whether the Pfizer vaccine should be authorized in this same age group or similar age group of five to 11 year olds. The thought is that once that committee meets, if they make a positive recommendation, the FDA could decide very shortly, within days perhaps. So I think once we get a better idea of when that committee might meet for the Moderna vaccine to talk about its use in kids, we'll have a better idea then of when it could actually be out there for that for that use. Peter Loftus, pharmaceutical reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. The first four weekly lottery drawings will include a $250,000 prize each week. The fifth and final lottery will be for uh, an award of $1 million. Joining us now is Aaron Shoemaker, science editor at Business Insider. Thanks for joining us, Aaron. Thanks so much for having me. Let's talk about all those COVID uh, vaccine lotteries that were going on. Uh, You know, at the time, it seems like I think uh, vaccination rates were starting to lag just a little bit and states were trying to do anything they could to get those numbers back up. And there was all sorts of different types of them. But, you know, it was something like win a million dollars. If uh, if you've been vaccinated, you're like automatically entered to win. 
Well, now we're seeing a, a little bit of numbers uh, relating to that. And unfortunately, it didn't seem like many of them worked. Uh, we might have seen some quick initial upticks in vaccination rates, but overall, they didn't really seem to work. So, Aaron, what are we seeing with these vaccine lotteries? Sure. So it's exactly like you said. Last spring, Ohio wrote out with this Vaximillion uh, lottery and some early numbers out of that seemed really promising. A bunch of other states jumped on board. And at the end, you know, 19 states were running these vaccine lotteries. Research out last week indicates that none of them really worked. About 89.4 million, I estimated, was spent by states. And a JAMA Health Forum paper found that they were virtually ineffective. That's what the research suggests. I live in California, so I distinctly remember when the time for the prizes came around. Uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom was at Universal Studios. They were doing it kind of bingo style where they were uh, getting numbers out of a little rolling cage. And, you know, they say, you know, so-and-so from here, from this city, you know, wins. And, uh, you know, it was the same thing. So a lot of fanfare to all of that. But it really only matters if it's if it's working, right, if more people are getting vaccinated. So I know a lot of the stats are coming out of Ohio when it comes to this, too. But so what did we see there? I guess in the initial week, vaccination rates went up 33 percent. But when you average it all out, I think they, the uh, the line was that it was uh, statistically indistinguishable from zero when you iron it all out. Yeah, that's pretty striking, right? They basically found that there was no effect, no association almost at all between the vaccination data, the state-level COVID-19 vaccination numbers for April and July, when basically anyone who wanted a shot could get a shot, and the announcements that were made by states at that time. It really did not seem to raise vaccination rates. You guys estimated that, I guess, it was about $89.4 million that were given away in these lotteries. It's probably a little bit more because some states didn't necessarily report back, but for the most part, they said that they were using federal coronavirus relief funding, right? A few of them followed up with me and really stressed that, that they were using federal funding and not state funding. I think for the purpose of this story and actually for the purpose of the research, it kind of doesn't matter. You know, as the researcher told me, there's an opportunity cost to spending money regardless of where it comes from. So any dollar you're spending on a lottery, whether it's a federal dollar or a state dollar, you could have been spending on something else. And so, you know, he said to the extent that we have policies that could have helped people, you know, these were not a great use of funds. Right. They could have gone into other programs, maybe just more awareness campaigns. I mean, who knows really what would have worked at that moment, but probably giving away large sums of money to very few people, not the best way to do it. And obviously that leads to, you know, the other question, right? So what kind of incentives do work? And there's, you know, very little research per se on that, but maybe like a a guaranteed money is better than these big lotteries, you know, even a lot smaller. If everybody gets a guaranteed sum of money, that might work. There are some dueling points of view on this. And I did talk to a psychology professor back in the the spring, and she was saying that she suspected that guaranteed money, like you're saying, might be more effective than these sort of gambles. Uh, West Virginia did that with those $100 savings bonds. But in general, um, the research is pretty thin on monetary incentives. You know, she thought that people like a sure bet better than a gamble. But the economist I spoke with said there's a possibility that these COVID-19 vaccines have been so highly politicized that maybe there's no amount of money that's going to convince people who think the vaccines are dangerous, even though, you know, we know that they are safe. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's kind of, uh, you know, one of the points, too, you know, when you're going to reach some trying to reach somebody that thinks it's dangerous or objects to it on either a religious thing or highly politicized point of view, that's not really going to necessarily work with them. And this whole thing is to say why it's important to talk about it and kind of analyze what's happening is 
there will be other pandemics. There will be other needs for vaccines and vaccination campaigns. We're going to go through it with booster shots coming up pretty soon. And maybe this is not the best way to go about it. Absolutely. And that's something that the researcher kept driving home is that, you know, it's not to criticize these states for trying something like learning what doesn't work is just as important as learning what does work. And this gives us a chance now to free up those dollars when we do inevitably have, like you said, a booster shot campaign or, quite frankly, the next pandemic and try something that that works and innovate a bit and not waste money on things that we you know have have tested and see were not super effective. Right. I remember crossing my fingers to when uh, when it was going around in California. I did not, but you know now we have a little more data <laughs> to back it up. Erin Shoemaker, science editor at Business Insider. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Had we known, like nineteen months ago or so, like if but nightlife was going to go away, we probably. Even like the most introverted people would probably be like, well, I'll stay out for like one more drink. I'll stay out for like one more song. Joining us now is Alex Abad Santos, senior correspondent at Vox. Thanks for joining us, Alex. No problem. Thanks for having me. I saw the headline for your article and uh, instantly kind of started feeling the same way. So the headline goes, when can we start enjoying nightlife again? <laughs> uh, you know, for myself, I'm, I'm uh, not really much in the club set anymore, but it definitely do like going out to uh, some bars and having a drink. My favorite thing to do for my birthday every year is get with all the friends and go to a dive bar and have some cheap drinks and some good times. And throughout the pandemic, obviously, (laughs) that thing was taken away very abruptly for a lot of people, for the people that like to enjoy to do that. uh, And for the people whose livelihoods depend on it, you know, uh, servers, bartenders, all that. Um, Yeah, like DJs. I mean, I feel like everyone, had we known, like, 19 months ago or so like if but nightlife was going to go away we probably even like the most introverted people would probably be like well i'll stay out for like one more drink like (laughs) i'll stay out for like one more song i'm gonna maybe like go to one more place now moving into this new phase right things are opening back up those opportunities are back there but we still have uh, the pandemic going on and a lot of this now is uh, what is your risk What, what is the risk factor that you have to deem for yourself on whether you want to go back out there, because I still haven't even ventured out there that much. So uh, I know uh, your article was kind of exploring that. So what are we looking at? So I think like when it comes to public health experts, the the current state of the pandemic right now is they would tell you, don't go out. That is the ultimate zero risk activity. But I think like what they what they also say is that like humans are going to be human. And if like these places are open, you're going to go to them. And what they want you to do and what they think that we all can do is like think about our risk in like really helpful ways. And just like think about minimizing our risk and think about like assessing our risk. Like if we're going to go out, if breakthrough infections happen, how can we best take care of ourselves and also like take care of the people around us? And, you know, the bars and the clubs, right, for themselves are, are perfect breeding grounds to passing this along. Poor ventilation. You're enclosed with a lot of people. So um, a, a, lot, <laughs> yeah. a lot of what they say is, you know, look at the vaccination rates around you and the positivity rates around you in your community. Obviously, see if the venues themselves have improved ventilation, if they're doing vaccine checks. And then obviously yeah. your own personal status, too. Are you vaccinated for yourself? Yeah, so those three things are kind of like the pillars so that you could try to figure out your personal risk. So like if let's say like you're not vaccinated and the venue is not doing anything about vaccination checks, 
your risk is probably pretty high and it's like going to be high. But I think if those three things and you keep those in mind, that can also like guide you and be like, well, if the place I'm going to it has better ventilation and they're reducing capacity and I'm in a place like I think California has a low, like some parts of California have a low positivity and per capita rate of COVID. I think those like things, you're just like, yes, I'm obviously safer in this place. But I think what they want to stress is that it's not a zero risk thing. Like it's like very much like there is risk there. But if you take these places or taking these precautions, it's making it a little bit safer for all of us right now. And you make a point too, you know, if you're going out, a lot of this is to protect the people around you. And I appreciate that note too, because, you know, when we look at the industry, the restaurant industry, the hospitality industry and and all this you know, they've taken such a huge hit over the pandemic, but it's not necessarily by choice. They A lot of times they have to work in these situations and it's right. tough for them, you know, for their safety as well. Yeah, I think uh, uh, what scientists also want you to keep in mind is that like, OK, so if you do go out, like, let's think about like the people that you're around. Like, do you have a kid to come home to or children to come home to? Do you see your parents who might be older? Do you go to the grocery store? Like, who do you come into contact with after you go out? Because I think like that's one of the things we have to keep in mind is like, if you go out, let's say, for heaven forbid, you have a breakthrough infection and then you go out afterwards, you're exposing a lot of people or you could be exposing a lot of people to that infection. And it's that's I don't think anyone wants to be put in that position where it's like if you didn't even go out to a club. I don't think like you could conceivably get sick with, by, without even going. Right. So I think like we all really have to, I think what public health experts say is that we all really have to think about like who we're coming into contact with and think about like, okay, it's not just personal risk. It's like our responsibility. So if we do go out, maybe just like limit contact with other people after you go out to a nightclub or a bar. And the other side of that testing, because I think uh, testing has kind of been thrown by the wayside in a lot of cases, you know, since yeah. the vaccines came out, everybody's like, get your vaccine, get your vaccine. But Testing is still an important tool in all of this. As you mentioned, uh, if you know you're going to go somewhere, maybe test before so you know you're good before you get there or vice versa. You went somewhere. There's a lot of people, a lot of stuff going on. Test after. That way, you know, you're, you're clear again on the other side of things. I think what the CDC guideline now is like if you are exposed to someone, right, and which in, I think a lot of doctors say that if you're going to a crowded nightclub as a given pretend that you're exposed to someone because that's a very high risk activity. What they say is to wait three to five days and like minimize risk, wear masks indoors and then test. And then if you're testing, I think that is what the double vaccination or the full vaccination protocol is. Again, you're not just taking care of yourself. You're taking care of the people around you. Cause like, while you might be super healthy and like be young and ready and like, and the breakthrough infection probably isn't going to affect you that much. It might affect someone who isn't vaccinated or who is older or who doesn't have like who might be immunocompromised or who might be like a kid and who doesn't who doesn't have the opportunity to get vaccinated yet. So I think it's like a lot of personal risk, which is also a lot of just responsibility to other people. Alex Abad Santos, senior correspondent at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Thanks for having me. I will see you on a dance floor partying safely, hopefully soon. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.